We were coming to the very end of our class. We were, we were looking at uh, the, the temptation. We mentioned Mark, uh, cla- classic Mark fashion. Hits you pretty quick with just a couple of verses. Matthew and Luke provide a little bit more information about the temptation of Jesus. Again, this is coming on the heels uh, of his baptism by John. And, uh, and then he goes into the wilderness. We, we pointed this out, but I think it, 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 bears, it bears mentioning again. Uh, and, and I think it's Luke... I think it's Luke that mentions it. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. At least in my mind, I think about Jesus going into the wilderness, fasting for 40 days, no, no, no mean feat, and then being tempted. And then, you know, after he has really focused himself for this long period of time, then he gets hit with these three temptations. That's not the way that Luke presents it. Luke presents this entire ordeal as a temptation. And then, just to bookend it, at the very end of Luke's account, in verse 13, he says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, not forever, until an opportune time. So I don't want us to get the image in our minds that, you know, Jesus was out there, he was waiting, he was focusing, the devil came and hit him with these three temptations, and then he had passed the test, and he was able to check that box and move on with his ministry. This was something that at least I get the impression from from the gospel accounts here, He was constantly dealing with temptation. That's not the way that the devil tempts us. He doesn't allow us to gather our thoughts and get prepared and get ready for it and then hit us with something and then go away. And it says that Christ, in Hebrews, it tells us Christ was tempted in all manner as we are. So we can look at this and we can almost see this as a model for how Satan tempts us. And I pointed these things out very briefly at the end of our last class. But a lot of times he uses things that, at least on the face of it, don't appear wrong. Christ was the Son of God. He had the ability to work miracles. He had fasted for 40 days. He was hungry. And Satan just says, you know, use the power that you have to turn these stones into bread. On on the face of it, nothing wrong with that. But Satan is getting him to twist and he's getting him to abuse the power that he has. He can do the same thing for us. He can give us things that may on the face of it, they don't appear wrong, but they distract us from the spiritual. They get us to abuse the privilege or the right that we have. You think about it, when we resist his initial efforts, does he turn away and leave us? No. He adapts. He changes. In so many ways, he is the ultimate enemy. He learns from us and he attacks each of us individually where we are weak. And if we resist in a certain way, then he comes back. So you see the same thing with Christ. As Christ had resisted his initial advances, he says, okay, let me try a different tact. The same thing for us. Even twisting scripture. Uh, Matthew's account and Luke's account have the order of temptations uh, slightly different. I don't don't think it matters. Um, But you have this where he even twists and uses scripture. In Luke's account in verse 10, he takes him up to that high point and he says, go ahead and jump off. Because it is written, and this is from the Psalms, He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in their hands. They shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Even using Scripture to try to tempt Jesus. And I think we see the same thing today, that Satan can work through individuals to twist Scripture, to take doctrine that was at once pure and undefiled, twist it, change it, transform it into something that is evil and it's not what God wants. Uh, I'll just take a break right there. Is, is there anything that anybody wanted to add? Uh, Nate, Nate's got a comment down here before we go on into John. I think one other thing to keep in mind is, <clears throat> although Satan is the is master tempter, 
and he, he tempts us, he's not omnipresent like God. So not every avenue that we falter in is necessarily because Satan laid something out in front of us. James reminds us of our, you know, our evil desires or our desires that when we give in to them, you know, they can become sin too. So yeah, Satan is a tempter and he, he, he is all bad, mm-hmm. but not every single fault that we have necessarily is because he was there and laid it out before us. It, it can quite often be just because of who we are and the things we allow to, mm-hmm. to control us. Yeah, it's a good point. Any other, any other thoughts before we move on? Yeah, Phil? Yeah, thank you. I like what you said about um, uh, it wasn't just a one-time here he's being tempted and, and on we go, and, and now he's passed the test and checked the box. And, and timing is everything. Uh, mm-hmm. The devil, his timing was superb. And you think about it, he was, Jesus had just been baptized. Uh, he had just gotten the, the uh, acceptance of the Father. Yeah. And, and and he was, you know, as a, as a human, you think about how you're just on the top of you. Just I got the world wrapped up here. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. doing everything right. I'm doing. I'm going along. Everything is going good. What a what a great time for this, for Satan to say, aha! But look, look at yeah. this. Look at it, you're doing good. How about turn these stones into uh, bread? Yeah. Uh, you, show yeah. it. Prove it. Mm-hmm. You know. And so with the temptation, it's it's uh, the timing of that was was outstanding on the, the Satan's part. Yeah, and, but yet Jesus uh, stood up to the temptation. Yeah, and, and it's the same thing that happens to us too. Mm-hmm. You're, you're flying high, everything's good, everything, life is wonderful, and all of a sudden, ooh, look at here—you could step out over here on yeah. this side, and 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 there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, and, and and even too in in that, and I'm, I'm glad you bring that out. That there's a subtle twisting because it was the will of God that Jesus be revealed to the people as the Messiah. You know, it, it was his purpose to come and to show these individuals that, yes, I am the son of God. And, and Satan is almost playing off of that, saying, okay, you know, hey, listen, if you want to show people that you're the son of God, what better way than this? What better way than to go up to the very top of the temple and jump off, everybody sees it, and angels catch you? You know, so again, it, just that, that, that way of saying, you know, just taking something that you were going to do, something that was part of God's plan to reveal himself as the Messiah and the Son of God, but Satan saying, what if you just did it my way? You know, and just that subtle suggestion is taken away. That's an excellent point. Yeah, David? Yeah, if you've studied um, addictions, for instance, uh, you you may be familiar with the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T, that we are most vulnerable when we are either hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And I would just say sin in general. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't see Jesus being angry here, but was he hungry? Yes. Was he well, lonely? Hungry and angry go together, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> was he lonely? Was he tired? I, you know, so, so he's very vulnerable in yeah. that state. And Satan attacks him at those points. Yeah. Excellent point. Excellent points. A lot, lot, of, lot of application there, and I think a lot of things that we can take away from it. Uh, let's go ahead. Let's try, to, let's try to make up some more ground. If you would, turn with me to John. Um, I, I wanted to put this. I don't know how well you can see, you can see this map, but when we go to John, uh, John chapter 1, we're, we're going to be talking about a, a period in the life of Christ that is not recorded in the other Gospels. Uh, John is going to, re, re, you know, John chapter 1 
is going to kind of unfold some things over a period of a couple of days. And then John chapter 2 and chapter 3 are going to cover a short period of months. When you go back to the synoptic gospels, we really just see a jump from the temptation to the beginning of, of the big Galilean ministry. And it doesn't record this, this shorter period of ministry uh, in and around the area of Judea. But I wanted to put this map up just so that we could, you know, if you're like me, I like context, I like pictures, I like seeing where I'm at. We're going to be talking a lot about going back and forth from, from the area of the Jordan. Uh, and and that's, that's in the area of Judea and Jerusalem going up to Galilee. And when we're up in Galilee, we're going to be talking about several of these places. Obviously, Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, going up to Cana. Going over to Capernaum, Capernaum is going to be Jesus' Jesus's base for a little bit, kind of his, his, his launching point. Uh, coming back down, you see uh, Salem and Anon there at the northern part of the Jordan River. That's where John the Baptist is going to be baptizing later. So I just wanted to put this up just so you can kind of get some of these things in your mind. Jerusalem and Judea down in the south working up through Samaria. We'll hopefully touch on that today. And then with Galilee being in the north, and of course Capernaum there being on the Sea of Galilee. So just wanted to put that out there to hopefully give you a mental picture of some of these places that we're going to discuss. But when you come to John chapter 1, we mentioned this, uh, I believe it was two weeks ago, uh, just, just how remarkable, maybe it was just a week ago, uh, just how remarkable it is to me the humility that John displays. Multiple times he has the opportunity to, to take credit, to promote himself. And at any point in time when he has opportunity to promote himself or to take credit for what he's doing, he points to Jesus. He points to the Messiah. He reminds individuals that I am not the one you are looking for. And this is exactly what we see uh, in, in John chapter 1 and in verse 19. It seems that there are these individuals that have been sent from the Pharisees and the Sadducees to inquire of John. And he tells them flat out in verse 20, I am not the Christ. I am not the anointed one. I am not the Messiah that you're looking for. And they have these follow-up questions. They say, well, okay, are, are, you, are you Elijah then? Are you the prophet? Uh, in verse 21, um, John, John Grimman and I had a conversation last week about uh, who, who would the prophet be? Uh, you, you can go back to Deuteronomy and you can go back to Moses there saying that they're going to raise a prophet like me. Uh, another word, another word from the Messiah. But you can, you can see some confusion even among the people there. Who are they looking for? Are they looking for a Messiah, a Christ, a prophet, a reincarnation of Elijah? And they're asking all these things and he says, no, no, no. Well, and who are you? And John goes back to the same verse in Isaiah that we've been looking at. The same verse that Matthew and Mark and Luke all use. In 23, he says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He is there to prepare and to point the way to the Lord. As you come down to the next section of verses, verses 29 through 34, it says on the next day. You're going to see several series of this. I, I, count, I count four days. Verse 19, verse 29, verse 35, and verse 43. The next day, the next day, the following day. So we've got, we've got a chronology, a little timeline laid out for us. This period of three or four days and these events that are unfolding. But this next day, John sees Jesus. So this is after the events that we studied in the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus came down from Galilee to be baptized by John the Baptist. And the, the, the dove came down, the heavens were opened, it was revealed that this was the Son of God. Well, John sees Jesus and he says, this is the guy. Remember what I've been saying all along? That I am not the one, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Christ. This is the one. Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And he tells him, this is how I know. If you come down to verse 33, apparently it was foretold to John that upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so he says, listen, this is the one that I've been talking about. It was foretold to me that there was going to be one, and I was going to physically see the Spirit come down and alight upon him, and it would be clearly identified beyond a shadow of a doubt. John was like everybody else. He was waiting for the Christ. He was waiting for the Messiah. Yeah, he, he, he knew who Jesus was, but when he saw this, when he saw those events that we studied last week where Jesus was baptized, when Jesus came and he said, listen, permit it, permit this to be so, and I believe it's for this reason, so that John could have without a shadow of a doubt that this is the individual, this is the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world. What I think is interesting is that on, on the heels of this, he has clearly seen the one that was foretold to him who the Messiah was going to be, but John demonstrates his humility again in the following section of verses. It says the next day, so the next day after this, after he is clearly identified to those around him, the Lamb of God, on the next day, John is standing with two of his disciples, and he basically points them to Jesus. In verse 36, he's looking at Jesus, and he walks, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. He is, he, is, he is pointing them in the direction that they need to go. Behold, the Lamb of God. So these two disciples hear him, and they follow Jesus. Jesus turns around, and he says, What do you seek? And they say, Teacher, where are you staying? And he says, Come and see. Come with me. If you want to know more, come with me. Uh, it's just remarkable to me that, you know, and John is going to use this phrase later that I think is so powerful. You know, I, I, must, I must decrease that he must increase. You know, I am going to be fading away from the scene as Jesus is more prominent and coming on the scene. Uh, have, we, have we ever seen another man like that? Have we ever seen another man that had been given such an important, prominent role you know, recall our study prior. This was not like a hundred people that, that came out to see this happen. It talked about all of Jerusalem and the surrounding towns being aware and knowing what was going on and coming out to hear John and be baptized. Roman soldiers, tax collectors, Herod knew what was going on. He had this prominent stage and he said, I'm going to step off of it. I'm going to fade into the background because there is one who is coming and I'm not even worthy to unbuckle his sandal. It, it just, it, it's absolutely remarkable to me. And then to even have your own disciples, your followers, individuals that have committed to you and say, that's the guy. That's the Lamb of God. And, and essentially push them towards Christ. And they follow. It mentions in verse 40, it says, one of the two who heard John uh, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He finds his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Again, they, they, they had seen everything they needed to know. We have found the Messiah. He goes and he finds his brother. He brings him to Jesus. And Jesus says, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So we've got three names, Simon, Peter, and Cephas, just to make things, make things nice and easy. Um, so he finds his brother and he brings him to him. You go in the next couple of verses. The following day, verse 43, Jesus now calls an individual named Philip. So Jesus has these two disciples. Um, I, I think the other one that is mentioned is probably John. 
The writer here, it says, remember, two disciples, two of John's disciples go after Jesus. One of them is named as Andrew. Andrew goes to find his brother Peter. Um, I, I would imagine that the other one there is John, is the writer here. Uh, that, that is part of John's habit all throughout his writing to omit himself in certain instances. So John, you have Andrew, you have Peter. Now he goes and he finds this individual. We're in Galilee, uh, Philip. And he says, uh, I'm sorry, we're not in Galilee yet. He wanted to go to Galilee. So he finds Philip. It says that Philip was from Bethsaida, which is also where Andrew and Peter were. And then Philip goes and he finds his friend, Nathaniel. Um, now, what is, what, what is Nathaniel's other name? What do, we, what do we sometimes see Nathaniel referred to as? Uh, I thought Bartholomew is what I was thinking of. Um, Sometimes called Bartholomew. I don't know if you guys know that song. Um, that's, that's, that's how I remember it. Uh, now, we have something, we have a little bit of a different situation with Nathaniel. Prior, we have seen individuals who at least appeared to be disciples of John the Baptist. They come willingly to the Savior, they know it's the Messiah. Nathaniel appears to have some doubts. Um, so when Philip comes to Nathanael and says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's like, oh, hold on. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And again, I don't know if this is, if this is just a little bit of prejudice or if this is just genuine curiosity. You know, I don't want to assign too much blame to Nathanael. But whatever the case was, Nathanael has a little bit of doubt. When he hears this, it's not like, all right, let's go right now. He's like, it, really? The Messiah from Nazareth? And, and, and I, love, I love the response here that Philip says, come and see. He, he, he almost parents back the same words of the Savior talking to Andrew earlier, come and see. And, and what, what, what I love about that is there's just, there's just complete faith in this person that he was bringing Nathaniel to. There was no doubt in, in his mind. And listen, if you've got some doubts, that's fine. Come and see for yourself. And, and that's, I think that, that's a good reminder for us. Uh, I, I, thought about, I thought about Romans chapter 1 and in verse 16. Romans chapter 1 there and in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. There are a great many people across the religious landscape today that are spending every waking hour trying to think of complicated ways to get more people in the doors. What can we do? What can we change? What can we cut out? What can we dress up to try to make the gospel more appealing to people? What can we soften to make the gospel more palatable to people? What roles do we need to change in the church to make the gospel more palatable to people, to kind of get more people? No. Come and see. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It, it, I, love, I love how simple it is. Nathaniel, you've got doubts? That's fine. Come and see for yourself. If your heart is seeking the truth, you will find exactly what you are looking for. And, and I think that's, that's a good reminder for us today that sometimes it is that simple. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't put a lot of extra effort into thinking about ways to talk to people. Uh, you know, we definitely have examples throughout Scripture where we need to be tactical. And we need to think about how we approach certain people, how we meet certain people where they are. But there's also a very simple element to it. Sometimes it is just as simple as finding somebody and saying, listen, come and see. Come and see for yourself because the gospel has power to stand on its own. 
Yeah. Bill, did you have something? David? I saw, some, I saw some people picking up mics back there. Well, the, the invitation of Christ in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me. And then in Revelation 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, come. So that's what we have to do. That's our part. Yeah. Yeah, a good point. And, and, and when, when you kind of read throughout the rest of this, this account here, uh, Jesus does not disappoint. Again, a good lesson for us. Jesus does not disappoint. For, for those that are truly seeking the truth, uh, Jesus does not disappoint. So when Nathaniel comes, Jesus greets him and says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, this is in verse 47, in whom is no deceit. Now, Nathaniel has not met Jesus at this point, and he's like, Hold on, you, you, you know who I am? And Jesus tells him, before Philip called you, in verse 48, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Very simple. But that was enough for Nathaniel. That was enough. Just that Christ was able to demonstrate that knowledge. He had not seen him. He had not been present. And he was able to know just this little thing that I know exactly when and where Philip called you. Nathaniel said, all right, I'm in. (laughs) I am in. And Jesus actually said... Like, I, get the, I get the impression here that he said, that's all it took? Oh, man, if, if everybody was like you, we'd, we'd be in good shape. But he says, he says in verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, you will see greater things than these. He said to him in verse 51, I say to you, hereafter you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. All right, verse 51, when would that have been, when would that have been fulfilled? When would Nathaniel have seen the heavens opened? Yeah, Acts. Acts is what I was thinking. I heard a couple people saying it. Acts chapter 1, when Christ ascended and the apostles were all there. Remember, Christ ascends, those two angels come down and speak to them and talk, talk to them as men of Galilee. So he tells them, listen, you're going you're gonna to see a lot more than this. And Nathaniel would. Nathaniel would, uh, as he was there, he would see the heavens opened and he would see Christ ascending, those angels descending and then ascending, ascending back to him. Um, let, let's go into chapter 2. Uh, any, anybody else that wants to, any other comments or anything? Yeah, John. What's in verse uh, 21 when he was asked if you're Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus said he was the Elijah that was to come, that John was, was the Elijah. So is there a discrepancy there? And of course, no, there's not. <laughs> what appears to be the, uh, the answer to that is that the people were asking if he was physically the old Elijah that had returned in flesh and blood again. Mm -hmm. He said, no, I'm not. But uh, I think Luke answers it in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, talking about John, said he would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Mm -hmm. So was he physically Elijah? No. Was he prophetically Elijah? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Let's go to chapter 2. John chapter 2, we've traveled a little bit. So now it it mentions in John chapter 1 and verse 43 that Jesus had wanted to go to Galilee. Uh, And now it it mentions in chapter 2, three days later on the third day, uh, that they have now traveled up. Um, They have now traveled up to Galilee and they've come to Cana. So remember Cana was just a little bit north of Nazareth. So they've come to Cana and there's this wedding. In Cana of Galilee, it mentions that the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. 
And, and, and here it seems that Mary, Mary sees an opportunity. They attend this wedding. The, the, the wine has run out. And Mary senses an opportunity for her son. Uh, again, kind of going back to some of the things we were talking about. Jesus, talking to these disciples, talking to his family members, he wants to be revealed to people as the son of God. As the Messiah, as the Christ. John is going to be fading. He is going to be increasing. But it's going to be on on his time. It's going to be on God's time. Mary here senses an opportunity. She knows what her son is capable of. And and she says, says, they have no wine. Apparently coming to him like, I know that you can fix this. I know that you can do this. And he says to her, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But then, apparently... Uh, she is able to read between the lines of that quite clearly and goes to the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. So th- there might be some things that are, that are left out there. But again, you can see the confidence in Mary that she knows that her son is able to fix this situation. But this is going to be balanced with the point that Jesus is not yet ready to get to the point that I, that I think we're going to see a little bit later on today. When he really gets to that Galilean ministry. Uh, a little bit later even, he is going to go to the Passover. And he's going to start doing more signs publicly. He's not ready to get to that point yet. But w- what I do want to bring out, and I'm just going to point this out now, is that you think about what we, what we just covered. Jesus had just resisted the devil's temptations to work unnecessary miracles. So I don't want us to read through this account and think... That Jesus was just saying, okay, you know, I'll I'll go ahead and perform a little miracle for you to take care of this problem. He had a purpose in mind. And and I think it's the wrong, I think it's the wrong way to approach this to say that when the devil approaches him and asks him to use his power in in an inappropriate way, he says no. But then just a couple of days later, he would turn around and just work a simple favor for his mother. Uh, I think it's far more complicated than that. I think that Jesus had a purpose in mind, and that purpose is revealed to us. If you look in verse 11, it says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He did this for a purpose. He was not doing it because he was ready to start proclaiming himself as the Son of God, to start attracting crowds, and just to really start that big public aspect of his ministry yet. I think when I read verse 11, the purpose of what he was doing here in, in, in helping out, helping out at, this, at this wedding feast and performing this miracle, and it was a miracle. He was able to take this water. They filled up these, these jars with water and turned it into wine, wine that tasted even better than what they had set out from the very beginning. But this was done to manifest his glory and to foster belief. His family members were there. Hey, Bill, uh, Bruce has got a comment. His family members were there. His disciples were there. And these individuals are going to be instrumental as he begins the larger stages of his public ministry. And so I just don't want us to read through this and think that this was kind of just a flippant, you know, let me just work a little miracle for you. Yeah, Bruce. Well, and it goes back to the first uh, verse of, of John 1 is that here is the creator creating taking water, which is what grapes are made from. Grapes depend on water. We've got grapes in, in the backyard, and they, they depend on water to grow. And that's what they're made of. Here Jesus was, de- was declaring himself in a rather simple way, maybe to us, uh, that he is indeed the creator. Mm-hmm. But he does that throughout all the other miracles that he's done by taking things 
Uh, for instance, the man who was blind, he took dirt, mud, and put it on his eyes. Here's the creator recreating an eye from mm -hmm. dust that we're made of. So uh, we may pass this off as, well, it's first simple miracle, but it's far from simple. It's a declaration of, of who yeah. he is. Yeah. And two, you think about the process that he is bringing his disciples, those that are in his, his inner circle, those that are going to be around him, that they are also starting from a, from a very, very, you know, they're starting off of a small base. He's got to teach them. You know, they still don't have, and, and we're going to see all throughout the Gospels, they do not have a proper understanding of who he is. He is going to be, yes, he's, he's got this big public ministry where he's working signs and doing things for the masses, but he's also teaching on a much smaller, more intimate level. And I think this is the very beginning of that. That as he's doing these things, a lot of times he's doing these signs, he's doing something in a public nature, and then how many times later do the, the disciples come back and say, all, all right, you, you got to explain this. You know, br bring us up to speed. We just don't get it. I, I think this is what we see the start of that, is that Jesus is focused on those that are closest to him, and he's trying to bring them along. He's trying to properly instruct them as to who the Messiah is and what his real purpose is. Th thank you for that, Bruce. Um, well, let's keep going throughout, throughout John chapter 2. Um, after this, it mentions, uh, it mentions in verse 12 that he went to Capernaum. He doesn't stay there very long. So if you remember our little map, you've got, you've got Nazareth. North of that, you've got Cana. A little bit uh, north, uh, I guess northeast of that, you have, you have by the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. But now he's going to be going down for the Passover to Jerusalem. Um, and you come to verse 13 and 14, he comes there. And, and this, is, this is the first account of him cleansing the temple. Um, he travels to Jerusalem for the Passover, and seeing all the corruption there that dominated it, uh, he makes a whip of cords in verse 15. He drives them all out of the temple, the sheep, the oxen, poured over the changers, uh, the changers' money. Verse 16, he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. I again, I think he is step by step revealing to the disciples, revealing to those around him who this Messiah is going to be. As he speaks to Nicodemus in chapter 3, we're going to see even more about this. There was so much misunderstanding of who the Messiah was and what was his purpose for coming into the world. And with each thing that he does, Jesus is revealing not only his, his connection to the Father, that he is the Son of God, but exactly what the purpose of the Christ, what the purpose of the Messiah was. And here, and here he comes in, and he does something in a very public way. I think it's interesting that he, in some ways, starts his ministry this way. But then when you go, uh, you kind of go all the way, let's see, you go all the way to the end, Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, there at the very end, that's also kind of how he finishes his ministry. We have another account, and I believe there are two accounts, one fairly early on, one later, where he does the same thing. There's some slight differences between those. But, but the idea is that the religious structure and organization, of the, uh, and organization of the day is not appropriate. It is not aligned with the Father's will. The way that, the way, and we, we kind of talked about this in the introduction, some of those things that had, that had changed and evolved over the previous 300 years, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all of these things were in response to external influences. Some of them started, you know, you could even say that the, the Pharisees started with good intentions. They saw those Greek influences and they pushed back against them, but they had gone too far. You know, Herod, this, this, wicked, this wicked person, 
who had tried to buy the people off by building the temple up and, you know, uh, putting all this gold and all these beautiful things on it. Jesus is coming in, and much like he's going to do on the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, listen, it's wrong. It is all wrong. You've got to start thinking differently. You've got to start acting differently. And that's what the Messiah has come to do. The Messiah has not come to elevate you, to conquer Rome, to do all these things. I've come to get you to think and act differently. And that's what the gospel is about. The gospel is about changing your life. And if you're going to change your life, we've got to change the temple. It is not about commerce. It is not about trade. It's not about making money. That is not the purpose of these sacrifices. That is not the purpose of the Passover. And this is a big public way of telling the people it's not right. We, we, have got, we have got to change this. Obviously, it gets the attention of the Jewish rulers. And they say, okay, uh, who, who are you to do this? What, what sign are you going to do? And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Clearly, they're, 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 not, they're not catching on. Hard to blame them, honestly. Uh, they don't want, to give them, never want to, don't want to give them a free pass, but I, I can empathize with them just a little bit in that case where, where, they, where they're not getting it. But again, laying the groundwork. He's laying the groundwork. He's going to talk about this in several different ways. And so for those that are in his inner circle, they should remember, if they were here, the times that Jesus has talked about, you know, I'm going to give them the sign of the prophet Jonah, who is in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. The Son of Man is going to need to be lifted up. You know, again, small pieces of the puzzle, layering and stacking time and time again to hopefully get this message across. But he's there, of course, prophesying about his death and his resurrection in, in the 21st verse. Um, now, what I do think is interesting is that when you think about this very limited, uh, limited ministry, uh, it, it was successful. It says in verse 23 that uh, during the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Um, and, and one of the individuals that was curious enough is when we come to chapter 3 is this individual Nicodemus. This was a Pharisee. Uh, it mentions he may have also been a part of the Sanhedrin because it mentions that he was one of the rulers of the Jews. He comes to him and... Uh, we, just, we just don't, of course, have the time to really do this justice. But I want to point out just a couple of highlights from their conversation. The first thing is that Jesus here reveals just a- a- absolutely plainly to Nicodemus this wonderful, glorious truth that we can see the kingdom of God by being born again. And Nic- Nicodemus is not fully grasping this, of course, at this point, but he is telling him, you can see the kingdom of God by being born again. And this is not... This is not simply a metaphor. When we go to Romans chapter 6, when we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 tells us that we are a new creation. And, and, and Nicodemus, Nicodemus isn't really getting it, but I, I love the illustration that he gives in verse 8. You know, how, how do I be born again? Do I go back into my mother's womb? Do I, do I die and then I'm just kind of reincarnated? You know, what, what are you saying, Lord? And he says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes and from where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. When we come up out of the waters of baptism, the old man of sin has died. That's what Roman tells us. We have crucified that old man of sin. We have been buried in likeness with Christ, and we have risen a new creature. Other than being soaking wet, do we look any different? No. But our entire life has changed. Everything is different. It's just like the wind. I I know the wind is out there because I can see the effects. 
I can see the things that change because of it. I can't actually see the wind, but I can see the way that the trees move when the wind catches those branches. I can see flags that ripple. I don't know where the wind comes from. I don't know where the wind is going, but I know that it's there because I can see the changes that it causes. And I think that's just such a wonderful illustration that Christ is giving here to Nicodemus saying, this, this, is, this is big boy stuff. I mean, this is, this is weighty. I get that you don't understand it, and this is, this is kind of how it's like. What a, what a wonderful way to explain that. But it is. It, it is a glorious truth that we can see the kingdom of God by being born again, by crucifying that old man of sin, and being a new creation. I think he's also, again here with Nicodemus, laying the groundwork for individuals that are not quite grasping this idea of the purpose of the Messiah. This is not about a physical kingdom. He tells him, he's like, listen, you know, we're not talking about earthly things here. We're talking about spiritual things. This is not the Messiah coming to sit on an earthly throne to overthrow Rome. This is not a- another iteration of the Maccabees that is going to come and lead you in warfare and-, and-, and have some kind of physical conquest. In fact, he's even saying here, he said, I am not coming to condemn. I am not this leader because what's the purpose of, of a general? To go out in battle and to conquer to cast down, to destroy the enemy. Jesus is coming as a very, very different leader. And he says in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Very different kind of leader. Not coming in to lead into battle to destroy, coming in to lead into battle to save. That's the kind of leader that the Messiah is going to be. Uh, I, I know I hate that we don't have, I don't think we, we just have enough time to really do this justice, but I do. Are there any comments, any comments on this interaction with Nicodemus? Yeah, Alan? I, I think all three of these, the wedding, the, the temple, and then here as well, they kind of thematically go together. You've got Jesus at a wedding and you have this relationship that is in peril. It is about to be a disaster. And for us, we probably can't grasp how terrible this would have been in the wedding to not be able to serve the guests. And he say he saves this moment for them. And he goes to the temple and shows, here is a relationship that already is in disrepair. It's already been broken. You guys have ruined it. He does what he can to fix it actually in the temple. And then here we, we see this teaching that we, there is hope to fix it again, that mm-hmm. we can be born again, we can get to the kingdom, he will make a way for us to do that. All three of these, I think, really just showing that he's here to fix these relationships, yeah. and he will tell us what we can do to, to enter into that covenant again as well. That's a great way. I appreciate that. That's a great way of connecting, connecting those together. Uh, let's, try to, let's try to finish up chapter 3 real quick. These, uh, these, these last verses... Uh, Jesus, Jesus now, uh, he comes to, to, uh, into this area, which is close to where John is. Uh, it mentions that John is baptizing. If you remember, I pointed out on that map, uh, Aenon, which is near Salem. There was a lot of water there. Um, and it mentions that John had not yet been thrown into prison. So we know that from a time standpoint, all of these things have now all happened before where the other synoptic gospels are. Because the synoptic gospels are going to then pick up with John being thrown into prison and Jesus starting that Galilean ministry. But this is another situation, and this is what I referenced earlier, where there's this little bit of dispute between John's disciples. Those that are loyal to him are seeing that Jesus and his disciples are also baptizing and the crowds aren't coming to them anymore. 
on the heels of what he did at the Passover in Jerusalem, now the crowds are starting to go to Jesus. And John's disciples are a little bit upset. They say, listen, look what's going on here. And John, yet again, just, he just hits him with it. He said, listen, I, I've been telling you guys this. You yourselves, verse 28, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. And they said, let me put it a little bit different for you. It's not two guys that are fighting over the bride. I'm the best man. If you haven't figured out who I am yet, I'm the best man. He's the bridegroom and there's the bride. It's not two of us that are fighting over the same thing. I'm the best man and I can't wait. I cannot wait for this individual to come on the scene and do what he is doing. And he says, as you go down in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Just, just putting it out for them very, very plainly. He is going to step back as Jesus is beginning his public ministry. And he is readily testifying. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Just, you know, we're, we're kind of bringing to a close our, our study on John the Baptist. And I just can't emphasize enough how, how impressed I am with the attitude that he consistently demonstrated in paving the way. Uh, John chapter 4. Let, let's go into this real quick. Uh, Jesus and his disciples had come to Judea to teach. He leaves this area and returns to Galilee. Um, it, it is mentioned, and we talked about this in previous, in, in Luke chapter 3 and in verse 19, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, Mark 1 verse 14. It talked about John the Baptist being imprisoned. We're told in Luke exactly why that was. Remember, John was not afraid to speak truth to power. Tax collectors, Roman soldiers, Herod, and he told Herod exactly what he needed to hear. You should not have that woman as a wife. And because of that, he was imprisoned. Um, it, it, seems that, it seems that Jesus is now going to move away in chapter 4. It says, When the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized even more disciples than John, uh, go down to verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Um, perhaps there, there was a little bit of heat. Um, John had been imprisoned. Jesus was not ready for his ministry to be cut short by any more government interference. And so he decides to take things north to Galilee, but that means that he has to go through Samaria. This was not common. Most people would go around Samaria. Remember, Jews did not have any dealings with Samaritans. Uh, they were aliens. They were outsiders. In most cases, these towns had been populated when the Jews were in captivity. And the Babylonians would send these, these other foreigners to come in and settle there. But a lot of these Samaritans uh, were proselytes. They, they had converted and they studied the Old Testament. What I want to bring out real quick in John chapter 4 is that this is an opportunity. That Jesus sees this as an opportunity. And it's an opportunity to teach three people. He teaches the woman, chapter, uh, verses 7 through 26. He teaches his disciples, verses 27 through 38. And then he has the opportunity to teach the entire town of Sychar. Verses 39 through 42. And what this really uh, brings out to me is this is another example of the religious elite, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the priests at the time, Jesus coming and turning the common logic of the day on its head. You guys don't talk to Samaritans. I'll go. The, the religious elite have rejected me. They don't have time for the gospel. They don't have time for the message. I'm going to go to the people that will respond to my message. And here we have a woman, a woman who had been married multiple times, no less. A woman, his disciples, an entire town, an entire area that responds to his teaching. This is acceptance of Christ by those that were unpopular. And we see just that contrast between those that were, those that were popular, those that were elite, those that had money, not accepting his teaching, 
and the others were. And I, I just think it's interesting. I mentioned, uh, put a, a reference to Acts chapter 8, verses 4. After Stephen has been martyred and, and there's this great dispersion, uh, Philip, uh, a different Philip, goes to Samaria and has wild success teaching the gospel. Isn't that interesting that Christ had laid the groundwork here for teaching these Samaritans and teaching in this town? Philip goes to that same area years later. Again, wild success in teaching and teaching the gospel. Uh, we, we've got to stop right there. I, I'm sorry again that we didn't make as much progress, but, but Leland's going to take care of that for me next week. So, so I, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for your good comments today.